Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm Robin Buller, your host. Today, we are joined by Professor Eric Jennings of the University of Toronto, who will be discussing his new book, Escape from Vichy, The Refugee Exodus to the French Caribbean. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Robin, for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, Before we delve into the book itself, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly. So I'm a professor at the University of Toronto, where I've been since uh, 1998. Uh, I am a fellow at Victoria College. Um, My background is that I did my undergraduate work at Toronto, and then I went to Berkeley for my PhD. And I suppose I should mention that I'm a French colonial historian, first and foremost, with a strong interest in World War II France as well. So I wear several hats. Um, Last but not least, I'm a citizen of Canada and France. Oh, Interesting. Um, And you were at Victoria College, you mentioned. Exactly. So Victoria College is actually a university within the University of Toronto, but I have this multiple multiple identity within the University of Toronto as a fellow of Victoria College and a full-time member of the Department of History. Okay, wonderful. I myself was at Trinity College, so there will be a bit of a rivalry throughout this podcast, but <laughs> just a stone throw away. Yeah, <laughs> just a stone throw away. So, uh, with that said, what brought you to write Escape from Vichy? Well, um, there's actually a whole background to this story, as there often is. I think this must have started with my PhD dissertation because my my PhD thesis dealt with the Vichy regime overseas. It subsequently came out as a book titled Vichy in the Tropics. And as I researched the fate of the French Caribbean during World War II, the fact that these islands remained uh, under the orbit of Vichy for three long years, I realized, uh, looking at correspondence, that there were a great many refugees coming in on board cargo ships. And I thought this was quite odd and had not really been written about, except for some witnesses, I certainly, and, and, and people who'd... Uh, people who'd been on board these ships. So then I turned to the writings of people like Claude Lévi-Strauss and realized, wow, there seems to have been an actual migration wave and not just a few isolated travelers. Um, so this this had showed up in Vichy-era reports um, of local governors in 1941, 1940, complaining about incoming refugees and how they were placing a strain on resources. Okay, interesting. So what then were your research questions sort of from the beginning and how did you go about answering? Well, that actually, that project was then on the back burner for a while. Um, I, you know, one of the interesting things about this project is that it took me in so many different directions. There's so many threads to pull at. Um, One of the first instincts that I had turns out to have been a good one was to write Claude Lévi-Strauss while he was still alive and ask him how on earth he found out about these boats and how he got on board. And he very graciously answered me. So that, that was sort of stage one. Um, but then when I returned to this project um, in the 21st century, I uh, began asking myself deep questions about what kind of migration this was. And at the basis of it all is this question that I don't think I ultimately resolve. I think I sort of le- let the reader decide for themselves about whether this was, in a sense, rescue or whether it was expulsion. So that's one set of questions. A- another set of questions has to do about the nature of the Vichy regime. You know, the Vichy regime dealt with, grappled with the refugee crisis in France in a variety of ways, and it certainly took place in stages. So my question there was, you know, does this fit in with a particular stage of uh, Vichy policy towards refugees? And then, of course, I became interested in questions of migration and how difficult it was to emigrate and who got to emigrate when. Was it sheer luck to get on a boat? So all of these different problematics started emerging in a tandem, I realized very quickly that this was more than an article and that I needed to do a book with this. Okay. Um, And you mentioned that there are, you know, there were so many different directions that you were being pulled in. And also, you know, throughout the book, you bring in such a 
variety of disciplinary approaches and you look at such a wealth of material, how did you go about, you know, finding the material that you ultimately analyze? Well, there too, it was quite a web. Um, as I suggested, I, I certainly spent a lot of time in the French colonial archives, which are located in Aix-en-Provence, which provided me with a lot of information about how this route opened up in the first place, the reaction of local officials, but also through things like censorship files, I was able to actually retrieve some of the contemporaneous voices of migrants themselves, which was really quite quite wonderful. Mm. So that was one huge cache of materials. But with a topic like this, um, I also had to go to the French Caribbean, where um, there was materials on the, the makeshift camps in which these refugees were placed. Um, a great deal of correspondence on everything from you know the conditions of these refugees to feeding them to the encounters that they made. But then also, I was extremely interested in the reasons why this route came undone in uh, May 1941. So that then brought in a whole international layer to the question that took me to Washington, it took me to London, it uh, took me to the Netherlands. Um, and beyond that, of course, I was interested in hearing what the refugees had to say about their trips, how they themselves experienced this from, in some instances, local camps in southern France, like Gurs and Rivesalt and Les Milles, to their voyage on board the ship, to their experience in Martinique, and then on to other places like Mexico. And to do that, I had to delve into the archives of the refugees, which I found in places like Albany, New York, and Frankfurt, Germany. So there were many, many different um, venues for research here. And I have to say that without the support of the Guggenheim Foundation and the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada, I could never have gone to all of these different locations myself. Um, it really was uh, an extraordinarily time-consuming endeavor. Yeah, it sounds like you really traveled the globe. I mean, to some pretty amazing destinations, but but quite a bit of work. Um, I wonder if we should take a step back and if you could give our listeners a bit of background information on uh, this topic. So what was the political situation in France at this time? And why were there so many refugees in the country? So my story really picks up in the late 1930s. And as you know, people like Vicky Karen have written extensively on the refugee crisis in France. Um, yeah. And so I really pick up the story with this influx of refugees coming to France. Obviously, in the 1930s, uh, France remained a bastion of democracy on the face of it. Um, Italy uh, had fallen to Mussolini in the 20s. Uh, Hitler, of course, took over in Germany in 1933. Uh, by the late 30s, uh, Franco had uh, emerged victorious in Spain. So this is the story of um, thousands upon thousands of political, but also economic refugees finding their way to France, right? We have to add to the list that I just drew up, um, Armenians coming to France, uh, Russians coming to France. Um, so in addition to the German and Austrian Jews who were fleeing persecution in uh, Germany, to the Spanish Republicans who were fleeing Franco and to uh, the uh, Italian socialists fleeing Mussolini, you have to add all those other waves of migration. Um, and then you have to superimpose that onto the French context where we know from economic historians, the Great Depression took its toll relatively late compared to say Germany or the US. So um, you have a bit of a perfect storm in late 1930s France in that sense. And of course, you also have the ambient anti-Semitism, the rise of the crypto-fascist or outright fascist leagues, the paramilitary organizations, all of these gaining uh, momentum in 1930s France as well. So that's the backdrop. But the questions that historians have posed around this, I think, remain in some ways burning questions, which is to say, to what extent does Vichy mark a rupture or a continuity with respect to the 30s and the treatment of refugees in the 1930s? Um, th that's one of the, the big ones. And without giving it away, my, my book obviously looks at both sides of that story, but um, it's obvious that the answer is it's a little bit of both. Um, certainly the people who were at the helm at Vichy didn't emerge out of thin air. Um, mm -hmm. and certainly some of the um, ideologies, thinking, for instance, of the, the very motto, uh, work, family, fatherland. Those were some of the mottos of uh, the leagues in the 30s. Um, but at the same time, um, even though you know these refugees had been piled into makeshift camps throughout the 30s, 
you one has to recognize that there were no explicitly anti-Semitic texts passed by the French Third Republic either. So context matters. And what starts to happen after the fall of France, when France is defeated in a record six weeks by Nazi Germany in May, June 1940, is that these refugees that had been in very precarious and difficult circumstances suddenly find themselves literally at risk. Um, in a quite new context. They go from being seen as, sure, scapegoats of the far right to not just scapegoats, but identified by uh, Vichy and other extremists as the very reason for France's defeat, somehow the rot within France um, that would have supposedly sapped France from within. And also very pragmatically, um, the armistice conditions of 1940 were such that Vichy, in theory, had to hand over on demand um, German or Austrian nationals wanted by the Nazis. So even though these refugees found themselves in the so-called unoccupied zone in southern France, there was still already a measure of risk. And I'm, I'm very careful to tether all of this to a chronology and a context. I don't want to read history backwards. I don't want to fast forward to the Holocaust. Um, nevertheless, um, they were acutely aware of some of the risks that they faced already in 1940 and 41. Okay. And I mean, there's, there's of course so much literature written on Vichy and as you mentioned, even on the refugee crisis within France at this time, why do you think that this history hasn't really been told yet? I'm not sure I have an obvious answer to that very good question. Um, the story has been told at its fringes, right? Or it's been told in in ways that center it differently. I center the story on Martinique as a kind of hub. Um, to make a long story short, Martinique was chosen for these departures in part because it was a French overseas territory and therefore could be reached by people who already had a visa to be in mainland France. The ways in which it's been told um, by people interested in some of the protagonists in this story, like Victor Serge or Claude Lévi-Strauss or André Breton, is to look at um, the ultimate point of destination, um, to sort of fast forward over the Martinique stopover and look towards New York or look towards Mexico. Um, and that's been problematic because it, it elides all of the complexities of this voyage and the reasons for it. Um, right. And you, yeah. sorry, continue. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say you you alluded to how um, Martinique was perhaps uh, for people who had French visas, you know, a more uh, realistic option. But what other sorts of options for emigration did migrants have? Um, what obstacles did they encounter if they were, you know, on the quest to emigrate? Um, yeah. So uh, the short answer is that there were constantly shifting hierarchies of options um, and that these options remained in southern France at least until August 1942 things that would shift balance but remain possible it was still possible to get out of unoccupied Vichy southern France um, until late 1942 some of those other alternate uh, escape avenues included Portugal the Lisbon uh, avenue of escape um, going over the Alps into Switzerland remained obviously a viable option. Going over the Pyrenees into Spain and then on to a variety of other locations. And of course, there's also the Casablanca layover, which was part of the Martinique uh, route that I described. So all of these were places where people got to. There are other destinations as well. Palestine remained an option, although as the war spreads to the Middle East, it was becoming, there was anxiety around Palestine as well. And last but not least, some of the more surprising uh, destinations in East Asia. So some people got on board boats destined to French Indochina and from there found their way to, to Shanghai. So there were a number of different uh, places to potentially go. Um, the question was what opportunities were made available at what time and how did people access them? And that's something that I've tried to recover. Um, in particular, I show, for instance, the correspondence between Eric Itor Khan and his wife, um, uh, Frida, who uh, constantly go back and forth. He's being interned at the camp in Les Mille. She is in a hotel in Marseille, and they write each other about all of these different options. One day, it seems like they'll be heading to the US Caribbean. Um, next thing you know, uh, they are thinking of Lisbon. 
Um, then they're thinking of Morocco. And Martinique becomes an option late in the game, and it's one that they decide to seize. So this is negotiated, and it's context-specific. And you also write that um, I mean, you have all of these fascinating individuals that are that come into your story as as major characters. But uh, you write that to many of them, the opening of the Martinique Corridor sort of seemed like you know fortuitous happenstance at the time, or you know, a, um, something like that. But of course, it's more complex than that. Uh, could you explain, you know, how it how it came about? Sure. So your first point is really important. A lot of the refugees thought it was providential. Even Varian Fry of the Emergency Rescue Committee, whose uh, self-appointed mission is to rescue European celebrities in danger at this point, um, basically says, well, this was this was better than anything I could have dreamt up on my own. It was wonderful. It, it bypassed all of the difficulties before. And some of the refugees themselves actually imagined that Varian Fry in person had persuaded the Vichy government to make these freighters available. Um, it turns out that Varian Fry's organization certainly capitalized on this line, but um, they are not the ones who opened it. And one of the big archival finds that I made early on had to do with this document in the French colonial archives from late November 1940, emanating from Vichy's interior minister, Marcel Perrouton. And what Perrouton is doing is he is opening uh, this corridor to the Caribbean, to the French Caribbean for refugees in France whom he deems, and, and this is really important, he deems them overrepresented. He more or less alludes that they're parasites, uh, unwanted in France. But he also, in the same breath, talks about not failing on the rules of humanity and having to find a place for these people to go. So it's this really uh, interesting dichotomous uh, uh, set of instructions that um, seems to at once mandate expulsion and uh, rescue in, uh, as I said, in the same breath. And thereafter, indeed, that Martinique corridor opens up. And I've been able, one of the things that I, that I got to in the end were the records of freighter companies and shipping companies. That took, took a great deal of time. But I was able to reconstitute the number of departures, the freighters, where they stopped, how many people they had on board in a great many cases. And I've come up with this figure of roughly 5,000 refugees who got out in this way uh, between uh, the moment that this instruction goes out in late November 1940 and the time that the route unravels in May of 1941. So it's a quite significant corridor of escape or expulsion. Um, Walter Mehring, one of the German uh, Jewish poets on board, um, points out that, yes, he was being expelled, but it was wonderful to be expelled. And he really crisply... Uh, encapsulates the contradiction at the heart of this Martinique corridor. And 5,000 people in that period of time, I mean, that's that's a significant undertaking. Um, you know, how, how did people go about acquiring a spot on one of these ships? Oh, that's a great question. And unfortunately, there's no single scenario, even though I have all of these wonderful uh, testimonies. Right. Um, Perhaps a couple, a couple different examples. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, Anna Segers, the famous German communist uh, novelist, uh, talks at great length about her experiences waiting in visa lines, waiting for, it's not just the visa that's required, it's then permission to get into a, a country in the Western Hemisphere. The United States at this point is significantly closing its doors, but so too gradually are Mexico and Cuba and other options. So it's waiting in line for countless hours for visa, for exit visas, for shipping documents for various papers like this, making sure one has the requisite funds. It was very expensive to get on the boat. Um, a down payment was needed to assure the, the Martinique authorities that, the, that these refugees would not become a burden. So there were all of these hurdles, both financial and administrative. And of course, some of these refugees spoke pretty shaky French. Um, they were in constant showdowns with the administration. Um, and, and, some of them write of this being an almost Sisyphean task of, of having made inroads one day only to see it all coming undone the next. And Anna Segers really wonderfully describes all of this in a semi-fictional novel, uh, Transit, in which she talks about the hopes, disillusions, and dashed uh, expectations of so many of these refugees. What's interesting to me is some of them are, are very complicit with each other. They help each other out. 
others elbow each other out of lineups. There's the whole gamut of human behavior on display in this extremely anxious setting of Marseille, where these thousands upon thousands of refugees are trying to line up in front of the US consulate, lining up in front of the shipping companies, and then lining up as well before uh, the gendarme as they as they set sail. So there's these these countless hurdles, um, and the people who finally get on board, almost all of them, when they talk about this, and I'm lucky enough to have correspondence even from people on the ships, talk about just letting out a huge sigh of relief once they board these vessels. Even though the vessels, these are hardly cruise liners, um, they're they're pretty dingy uh, uh, cargoes, um, but everybody is is greatly relieved to be to be leaving. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the mechanics of the actual journey. So, um, of course, it wasn't all done in, in you know one quick sail. Where did people go through, and uh, what were the stops? So, well, first of all, the first challenge, as I said, was on the very docks of Marseille, where you had to get past uh, police uh, lines, you had to get past customs, you had to have all of your papers in order. I was surprised at how many people I found. Um, Italians, Germans, you name it, who managed to get out without all the papers uh, being uh, fully checked off. And uh, um, Vary and Fry and Walter Mering both recount, for instance, the exit of, of Mering, who is told um, by somebody right on the docks, ah, you don't have the required paperwork. Worse still, your name appears on a list. Then a phone call is made, and next thing you know, the police official says, ah, perhaps you're another Walter Maring. Off you go. So there's definitely acts of complicity uh, involved in this story as well, where refugees um, benefit from uh, complicit functionaries. And, and one of the questions I, I, I ask is whether these are Perouton's instructions being followed through or whether, in fact, these are uh, officials that are defying the rules. I think there's a little bit of both. And I was able to retrieve one um, low-ranking functionary in Marseille who clearly assisted uh, a great many uh, officials. So, so that's been so, some of the interesting discoveries on that end. But then, yes, the, the refugees then board these many vessels. Um, they, uh, these vessels, first of all, were absolutely essential to the Vichy regime as well. They serve many purposes. One of them is that they constituted an umbilical cord for the islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe, which were these little confettis of Vichy in the Western Hemisphere. And um, it was important from the standpoint of the authorities there that the products from Martinique and Guadeloupe, the bananas, the rum, the sugar, um, that there be an outlet for them. And these same cargoes that arrived in Martinique with refugees would depart with their hulls full of uh, bananas and rum and sugar. So that's, that sort of explains the existence of the route. Interestingly, I found that there were complex negotiations that Vichy was engaged in with the Americans to keep the route going, with the British to a lesser extent indirectly, um, who wanted to shut it down, but also with the Germans. Uh, Vichy wanted to make sure that these cargoes weren't sunk because they obviously wanted this material to keep going back and forth. So it was a very tenuous sort of uh, route, um, one that, that you know sort of hung by a thread. Um, it's the first stop from Marseille was typically uh, somewhere in Algeria, so Oran or, or Algiers, and then the second stop would have been in Morocco. Um, and some refugees actually boarded the ships to Martinique from Morocco, where some of them had been interned in makeshift camps for a, a year or a few months. So there's that aspect as well. So this this connects to the sort of Hollywood vision of the film Casablanca as well, to some extent. Um, and then from there, they would go on the high seas uninterruptedly as far as Martinique, uh, averting the many perils, obviously, of U-boats at sea and all, all of that. Right. And you also describe um, the passengers themselves as a sort of motley crew. So who were some of these refugees who found themselves um, on these ships and what were their experiences along the journey? So there were, um, in a sense, it's the mirror image of the refugee crisis uh, that I talked about. There were uh, a great many foreign refugees stranded in France. Um, there were also French nationals wanting to get out, um, some of them Jewish, and uh, knowing that they were in some degree of trouble. Uh, 
this was the case for André Breton and for Claude Lévi-Strauss, for instance, both French nationals, uh, both, uh, well, one of them Jewish, the other not, but both potentially seen as enemies of the regime for quite different reasons. Um, and then amongst the foreign nationals, you have some leading um, uh, figures of the Spanish Popular Front. You have leading uh, Italian anti-fascists like uh, Marcelo Montagnana, who uh, found his way um, to uh, to the French Caribbean this way, um, and a great many uh, German communists, German Jews. Uh, I mentioned Anna Segers, uh, um, but but certainly there's there's a, a whole group of them on board uh, these ships. Um, one of the interesting things is the connections that these people, people make on board. So, um, for instance, Mina Flacke had been a, a doctor in uh, Germany. Uh, she'd been involved in uh, children's medicine in Berlin. She um, made a number of interesting connections, first of all, in the camps in southern France and then on the boats themselves. And these refugees talk about uh, one another. So um, she gets mentioned, for instance, by Germaine Krull, who is another uh, foreign refugee on board. Kuhl is an avant-garde um, photographer of uh, Polish and uh, uh, Dutch extraction. Um, she is actually on board to try to join de Gaulle's Free French, which she ultimately does by way first of Martinique, then Brazil, and then she gets assigned by de Gaulle. Um, she gets posted in Central Africa. So these wow. refugees enter into dialogue with one another. Um, there's a great many intellectuals. I'm thinking, for instance, of somebody like Jacques Chiffrin, who uh, was uh, the founder of the Pléiade literary series in France and was making his way to New York by way of Martinique. Um, so it was quite an, an incredible uh, assembly of, of European thinkers as well who were leaving uh, for the Caribbean. And what were their uh, experiences of arrival? You know, how were they received by... Uh, by locals and by officials, perhaps by other refugees. So once upon uh, once in location on the Caribbean, in the Caribbean, uh, a deal was reached. So the, the governors of, of Martinique and Guadeloupe, as well as the admiral at the helm in the French Caribbean, Admiral Robert, uh, wanted really as few refugees as possible, and it's mainland Vichy that imposed these continued arrivals on them and they fought them tooth and nail. Mm. So the officials on location were um, extremely harsh to these refugees. Um, Is that mostly because of various resources or? Well, that's part of it, but there's ideology as well. So both Germaine Krull and Claude Lévi-Strauss recount um, arriving and then being grilled by uh, people who aren't customs agents at all. Uh, they're police people. And uh, they proceed to harass them, saying, "You know, you you people are uh, you people are not true French people." Um, blaming them for the fall of France, uh, hurling insults at them. Um, André Breton is told in no uncertain terms that he's not to befriend any Martinicans and certainly not to share his subversive ideas with them. So the the treatment is rather uh, brusque and harsh. Um, several of the uh, travelers um, who are actually uh, German Jews who, who left uh, for France uh, come up with the same idea, which is this isn't a really French treatment. These must be Germans in disguise. So harsh was the um, the greeting party, so to speak. Mm. However, once once they pass this rather unpleasant curtain, uh, there's no doubt that the two camps in which foreigners are placed, uh, one in Balata and the other uh, called Le Lazaret, that these two camps are uh, considerably less harsh than the conditions that the European uh, that they that they're leaving in Europe. Um, just to give one example, regularly refugees miss roll call in the evening and nothing happens to them. Um, and certainly the French nationals don't end up in these makeshift camps at all. They are allowed to find a hotel in town in Fort-de-France. So the answer is at once they're treated quite harshly as possible subversives. Um, in some instances, they're spied upon by the local police. In many instances, uh, they're insulted. But at the end of the day, um, they benefit from, on average, more lenient uh, living conditions than they had in, in southern uh, mainland France. And you also highlight that, uh, you, I mean, you've already mentioned that there were some fascinating intellectuals among this group. Uh, you highlight some interesting interactions between these intellectuals and local uh, Martinetian thinkers as well. Could you tell us more about some of these encounters? 
So there is, that's I think one of the intriguing facets of this is that there's this incredible synergy between on the one hand, some of the surrealists who are arriving, um, in particular, uh, André Breton, but also um, uh, somebody like Wifredo Lam, who is a, a great Cuban painter who has spent considerable time in Europe, including in Spain, uh, fighting with uh, on the Republican side, and now is finding his way back to the Caribbean. There's considerable synergy between these travelers on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, Martinican intellectuals, in particular the group around Emmy and Suzanne Césaire, who at this very time are articulating uh, new ideas of negritude or re-articulating negritude in uh, a quite wonderful newspaper called Tropique. And uh, the chance encounter between the surrealists on the one hand, these travelers, and on the other hand, uh, the uh, apostles of negritude uh, really takes a place. It takes place around Tropique. André Breton stumbles upon an issue of it, uh, asks to see the people who produced this wonderful review, and uh, the story goes on from there with with considerable cross fertilization. So surrealism uh, definitely is injected with new ideas. Uh, uh, from this encounter with the Caribbean. And at the same time, um, the pages of Tropique are, are rife with um, inspiration from uh, the Surrealists. And to my way of thinking, at least, the Césaires, both Aimé and Suzanne, utilize uh, Surrealist ideas as part of their struggle against Vichy. Now, there's a lot of layers to this story, one of which is it wasn't easy to say what one wanted to say in Vichy-controlled Martinique. And the pages of Tropique are also a cat and mouse game where you have these explosive new ideas um, influenced by the far left in part uh, getting past the censors. And they're getting past the censors Interestingly, because of points of commonality um, that both sides are playing on. So Vichy censors are uh, encouraging a return to the past, a return to tradition. And in some of the pages of Tropique, one sees a point of ostentatious conversion here between uh, uh, that and, and what they're trying to do, which is a rediscovery of Martinique's past and a rediscovery of um, African origins. And it's on that very tenuous point of intersection that the pages of Tropique continue to be published under Vichy. And none of that would have been possible, at least in the configuration that it took, without these chance encounters between refugees on the one hand and um, Martinique intellectuals on the other. So really you have this incredible profusion of um, uh, ideas around a little circle of intellectuals based really in this quite remarkable establishment, the Lycée Cholcher in Fort-de-France. And um, these, these ideas really conjure up a revolution that's that's fundamentally going to change everything from colonialism to tiermondisme in the subsequent 30 years. That's so fascinating. Um, and then, as you mentioned, in 1941, the corridor closes. Um, yeah, so what happened? So it closes quite abruptly, almost as quickly as it is set up. And there's no single explanation. Um, there are monumental tensions building around this corridor. Part of it has to do with U.S. anxieties. Um, and those U.S. anxieties are many. On the one hand, you have people in Washington quite concerned about a possible fifth column. These boats are uh, full of people with German-sounding last names. And uh, the State Department is constantly asking uh, the U.S. consular officials in Fort-de-France to investigate, to investigate rumors that there might be Gestapo agents on board these boats or uh, fifth columnists, as I said. In other words, that these refugees might actually contain um, some wolves posing as, as sheep in their midst. That's one concern. Another set of concerns uh, revolve around the very presence of this sort of Vichy needle in the Western Hemisphere and its flouting of the Monroe Doctrine. So the very fact that these islands are still loyal to Vichy, of course, is a cause for concern. Now, prior to U.S. involvement in the war, all of this is relatively low grade. Uh, but nevertheless, if you read the pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times in this era, you'll see a great many um, articles floating the idea that German U-boats are somehow you know, refueling mm. in Martinique or Guyane or Guadeloupe, 
all of which turn out to be false. I mean, the one the one story that does have basis is that um, a German sub um, with a wounded officer surfaces on a beach in Martinique, ditches the wounded officer, and then leaves huh. again. That's about the extent. That's about the extent Hardly of it. Uh, but you. <laughs> Right. You can see how these things in wartime with the Bobard, the famous false rumors, uh, would gain in amplitude. And uh, this this idea that somehow the French Caribbean was a kind of Axis beachhead was one that that really worried people in the Western Hemisphere. So there's, there's those sets of concerns. There's another set of concerns, which is um, those articulated in London, right? So the British have long wanted all French colonies to go over to General de Gaulle's Free French. And already in 1940, they were quite explicitly saying that that would be achieved by starving the territories in question through a naval blockade. Um, Interestingly, in Martinique and Guadeloupe, the the vast majority of the population wanted to go over to General de Gaulle. It was the naval clique in power, loyal to Vichy, that prevented it. So the British goal here was to try to limit the amount of shipping reaching Martinique because Martinique and Guadeloupe still relied on foreign wheat, for instance, or on cod uh, for the famous cod fritters that that uh, um, people in the French Caribbean so enjoy to this day. So it was the idea from London was to try to strangle off the islands and orchestrate a coup or a regime change in favor of General de Gaulle. Last but not least, the Germans are also concerned about these islands, right? They're uh, concerned that the aircraft carrier that's posted there might fall into U.S. hands. In other words, there's tectonic concerns over the French Caribbean. Ultimately, um, the the final nail in the coffin uh, takes place in in April, May 1940, when uh, a Dutch military, sorry, when a Dutch um, um, naval ship uh, intercepts uh, two uh, uh, freighters on the high seas, uh, bound for Martinique, filled with refugees, on the assumption um, that they are either carrying contraband or uh, Gestapo agents, or both in all likelihood. Um, these ships are then intercepted. Vichy demands to have the ships back. Um, the ships end up in Trinidad. Uh, all of the refugees on board, in fact, the sailors too, everybody is um, subjected to quite intense interviewing. At the end of the day, the French nationals on board are offered uh, to join uh, the fighting French, as far as I can tell, uh, very few, if any, accept. And the refugees are then sent on their way, um, although a handful remain in Trinidad, uh, those refugees are sent on their way and many end up again in Mexico or South America, Argentina, and mostly the United States. But um, after that, Vichy demands guarantees on ships that could sail. Those guarantees take a long time in coming. And finally, when the route does reopen several months later, it is um, explicitly without refugees on board. And the U.S. demands to be able to see the passenger manifests and inspect them. So it's a a series of of anxieties, um, probably the most intense of which has to do with U.S. concerns uh, that these refugees are, um, in fact, fifth columnists, and these re- recurring anxieties over that. Fascinating. And that complicates even more this question between uh, escape or rescue, but we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> it certainly does. Uh, yeah. And so what then happens to the refugees themselves after, after the corridor unravels? I mean, are the camps still set up? Where do they ultimately end up? So um, the the camp, the two camps that I mentioned, Balata and Le Lazaret in Martinique, are really designed to handle no more than 400 refugees at once. And the onus is on refugees to use Martinique only as a temporary location. And from what I can tell, the vast majority of these refugees spend fewer than three months in Martinique. Now, it doesn't mean that it doesn't impact them. On the contrary, I have, you know, um, Czech painters and German novelists all reflecting Martinique in their art in some way or another, even though they spent only a few weeks there in some instances. But the idea is that they will move on to greener pastures and mostly safer pastures, which many of them manage to do. Some of them have their visas expire while in Martinique because it takes so long to get to the U.S. Mm -hmm. Others end up going to Canada. Um, Others still, as I say, to South America. Some end up going to the Dominican Republic and Haiti. There's a broad number of scenarios as to where they ultimately end up. 
uh, a handful of them actually just can't get out. They are caught in a kind of limbo as, um, so some of them are, are literally stateless because they've been denaturalized by Nazi Germany and they don't have French nationality. And some of these people are just left in limbo in the French Caribbean. Uh, one of them dies in the French Caribbean later on. Um, a handful of them are actually threatened with um, being sent back to either Morocco or France. And um, the U.S. consul on location actually gets on, on the line with the State Department saying, listen, uh, the French authorities here are saying there can't be much of a threat against them or else we would allow them into the U.S. So this is a sort of horrible catch-22 that these refugees find themselves in, um, where they are not seen as being in mortal danger by the Americans and therefore might be sent back by the Vichy French. Um, there's actually one instance that I find of somebody being sent back only to have that, book, that boat then intercepted by uh, the British on the high seas. So some quite extraordinary and, and harrowing tales of last-minute escape from Vichy, um, but also potential re, um, if not deportation, re uh, redeployment back to uh, back to Europe. Now, uh, before we before we sort of close, I want to bring us back to the question that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, and that I sort of just jumped back to. I mean, the book is called "Escape from Vichy," but of course, as you've mentioned, this is this is a problem that you're grappling with. Is this rescue? Is this escape? Is it a little bit of both? Um, now that we've sort of talked about the entire book, what answer do you settle on? Well, it's not an easy one. And certainly even the term es escape is loaded, right? What I'm looking at is uh, boats full of European Jews, European dissidents, European socialists and communists, all wanting to uh, leave uh, the old continent for the safety of the new one. Interestingly, the refugees themselves conjure up all sorts of metaphors, right? Some of them talk about, they have references to the pilgrims, to persecuted religious minorities. Others uh, actually um, explicitly reference slavery. There's all sorts of different metaphors that they use themselves. Well, and you mentioned Exodus too in your title. Exodus, absolutely. All of these are bandied about as, as um, references. The other problem with the very term escape, and I know it's in my title, is that we're projecting backwards slightly. I mean, I, I go into great detail over the kinds of threats that refugees face in mainland France. Um, if the Kunt Commission, for instance, which is in charge of enforcing that article of the armistice about sending uh, Germans and Austrians back to Germany, that could very easily have befallen, that fate could have befallen many German nationals or former German nationals in southern France. So for them, yes, it's escape. For others, it's anticipating the threat. And as I talk about in the book, there's, you know, there's refugees who die of heart attacks in Varian Fry's office. So worried are they. Uh, and they're rightly worried. Um, they're worried because they've drawn caricatures of Adolf Hitler or because they've been outspoken critics of Nazism. And suddenly they find themselves uh, in southern France in this kind of no man's land, where although the region is not occupied, uh, there is this uh, looming sense of danger. And of course, by 1942, um, these fears would prove to be um, validated uh, because Vichy would start handing over um, some of these um, some of these refugees, these Jewish refugees, even uh, before the Nazis invaded uh, the so-called unoccupied zone in November of 1942. So part of this is also about situating it in context, making sure I'm not uh, jumping forward, but also retrieving the anxieties of the era. As for the question of whether it's expulsion or rescue, I think that Marcel Perrouton letter that I invoked from November 1940 is really at the crux of this question. So to me, Vichy wanted to be rid of these people. Um, and this speaks to multiple impulses, right? In the 1930s, the French Republic was faced with this um, huge refugee crisis at a time of, of considerable economic strain. And in fairness to France, uh, most nations of the Western Hemisphere just weren't taking people in, right? Estimates suggest that France took in maybe 200,000 Jewish people between 1900 and 1940 from other uh, um, theaters. Um, so they found themselves in France with nowhere else to go. Um, and certainly France's doors were more wide open than those of the, the Western Hemisphere uh, through the 1930s. So I think we can speak of successive different reactions and impulses. One of them, the Third Republics, was um, these makeshift camps. 
Um, admittedly, people faced a lot of discrimination in their everyday life, and admittedly, the the xenophobic uh, part of French society was uh, was making itself heard in the 30s. But it was still possible to live uh, in France in the 30s. By the time France falls in May June 1940, the circumstances really change. Um, as I said, these these refugees are now being pinpointed not so much as parasites as uh, being identified supposedly as the cause for France's defeat, the enemy within, according to some uh, particularly vi- uh, violent and vicious Vichy voices. And um, all of a sudden as well, from the standpoint of Germany, if these are former German nationals or former Austrian nationals, uh, Germany can ask for them to be handed over. Um, so there's considerable risk now for these people. And Vichy's impulse then is, listen, they're overrepresented. We don't want them. They're a burden on uh, the French nation. Uh, let's be rid of them. And I think it's significant that the first way of getting rid of them, at least in this Perouton memo, is well, let's try to send them to the Western Hemisphere. But Perouton himself in this document says, well, we're not having much luck in our negotiations with the US, with Cuba, with Mexico, etc. So barring that, as a last sort of resort, we'll send them to the French colonies, which although we're getting, we're getting backlash from them, we can sort of impose this. And it's a kind of intermediate solution. And it is, in a sense, a rescripting of earlier schemes, right? You think of, for instance, the, the fantasy of, of sending Jewish people to Madagascar, which goes way back uh, to the 19th century, or indeed to French Guyana, French Guinea. These sorts of, of ideas had been written, rewritten, scripted, rescripted, incidentally, by, you know, uh, Jewish organizations, but also by anti-Semitic groups uh, ever since the late 19th century. The idea of, of creating a new uh, Jewish homeland somewhere else had been floated for some time. So it's a, it's a kind of rescripting of these ideas. But as I said, it also speaks to an early Vichy impulse to be rid of the refugees one way of, or another. This, I think, then helps to explain the ways in which these refugees are uh, thrown into these camps but it's also important to keep in mind that in 1940 and 41, it was still possible to get out of Les Mille. And some of the more touching correspondence that I see is from refugees trying to cobble together the necessary sponsors in the United States and failing or proving to the American authorities that they're not going to become somehow a liability or a burden if they get to the States. So it's those incredible challenges that they faced. To my amazement, uh, other scholars have written about it, a place like Les Mille had uh, a refugee officer uh, until 1941 who was responsible for trying to get people out to uh, other continents. And uh, that refugee officer definitely directed some of the refugees I've looked at towards Martinique, saying it was the best option uh, in, in late 1940 and early 1941. So that speaks to a certain amount of coordination, and it speaks to a way in which um, uh, Vichy was committed to uh, sending refugees, uh, again, either abroad or uh, to French colonies. This is, again, something that, that somebody like Vicky Karen has written about extensively. And that prefigures a far more radical attitude at Vichy. It has to do also with the return of Pierre Laval. It has to do with German demands, but which will be um, adopted uh, later in 1942, which involves uh, serious complicity and uh, in, in deportations and, and turning a place like Les Milles from what it had been, which was a refugee internment center, into an antechamber to the Hansi, which itself was the last stop before Auschwitz. Uh, all of that is going to, to change very dramatically over the course of 1942. And so I look in my book at these close calls, these near misses, but also an amazing character like Jean Malaquet. So Jean Malaquet, a, a French uh, language novelist of, of Jewish-Polish extraction, who um, tries to get onto the boats uh, to Martinique and fails, writes with envy of you know Victor Serge and André Breton and others getting out while he can't, and finally manages to find his way out uh, in 1942, just a, a, a mere uh, few months before the Germans invade uh, the southern zone. So I'm, I'm also interested in this, this question of who made the boat and why. And at the end of the day, it certainly helps to have had influential contacts in the Americas. Uh, it helps to have had somebody like Varian Fry going to bat for you. That's certainly true. 
but there's also a great a great deal of luck. So um, somebody, um, Asayas, uh, who I talk about as a, as a filmmaker in here, um, also known by the name of Jacques Rémy, a pseudonym that he gave himself in the 30s, Jacques Rémy talks about how, you know, essentially he owed the fact that he made the boat to débrouillardise, which is to say a certain amount of getting by and also sheer luck. Um, and of course, last but not least, the complicity of people along the way. So the complicity of um, low-ranking administrators who helped, um, some of them turning a blind eye, others actively suggesting, you know, you should go in line at the shipping company because the Martinique line is your best bet. And interestingly, intentions here become blurred, right? So Anna Segers talks about some people helping her out, but also some Vichy policemen yelling at her, saying that she is a burden on society and needs to leave uh, for other shores as quickly as possible. In this instance, you have actually an anti-Semite urging her to leave. Um, and intentions, as I said, can become somewhat, somewhat messy. He too is intent on seeing her go, no less than Perouton. Uh, but for a different kind of reason, right? That's such a it's such a complex history. It's such a fascinating book. Congratulations on this! Oh, I really appreciate this accomplishment. It. Thank you, <laughs> and thank you for talking to us about it. Um, before I let you go, though, I want to know. Uh, I know you you this has just come out, but what are you working on next? Well, as I suggested, we always have things on the back burner. So before before this book, my previous one had been on, on Free French Africa and World War II. And uh, I've worked on, on a series of World War II topics uh, tied to French colonies. And I, I want to leave the Second World War a little bit for my next project. Um, so I'm, I'm uh, contemplating uh, doing a global history of vanilla, uh, which is a very different kind of topic. But it would be a, a commodity chain history looking at the ways in which this uh, this edible orchid um, went from being a staple of Central America to a French colonial staple by the 19th century. And I'm particularly interested in ways in which um, um, forms of indigenous or slave knowledge played into the cultivation of vanilla and the ways in which uh, vanilla became a source of livelihood for populations all over the French empire from French South Pacific, places like Tahiti, to the world's biggest producer, uh, which is Madagascar. So um, this will bring me back to Madagascar, back to the French colonial archives. And although it's worlds removed uh, from Escape from Vichy, it does also have to do with circulations, in a sense. And I guess back to uh, Aix-en-Provence, which is not a bad place to do research. <laughs> yes, I won't lie to you. Um, having spent at least four years of my life now in the archives at Aix, I, I consider Aix to be a home away from home and indeed a, a really lovely place to do research. And I would add um, wonderful archivists who um, perhaps have a little bit more time for researchers than the ones in, in the National Archives in Paris. It's, it's tied to the National Archives in Paris, but um, a much smaller uh, population of researchers actually visits the Aix-en-Provence archives outside of maybe July and August. Um, and so it really is uh, easier to get individualized attention and uh, to thrive. Well, that sounds like such a fascinating project. I look forward to reading the next book. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your kind words. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. This was fantastic. All right. Thanks again. Take care. Bye now. That was Eric Jennings of the University of Toronto talking to us about his new book, Escape from Vichy, The Refugee Exodus to the French Caribbean, which is available now through Harvard University Press. If you like listening to new books in Jewish studies, please consider subscribing to us and toss us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate hearing from you guys. Thanks for tuning in.